You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. For some of you, this is probably the single greatest threat to your faith right now. I am speaking of spiritual drift, spiritual drift. You know, if you go into the Niagara River and you get in a canoe and you don't paddle uh, actively and hard against the current, if you, if you decide rather foolishly that you're gonna take a nap in the canoe, before long you will drift very fast toward the falls, be caught in the current, be unable to overcome the current and plunge to your destruction. So let me define spiritual drift for a moment. Spiritual drift is not so much what you do, but uh, what you fail to do. Uh, Though spiritual drift has many forms, there are certain commonalities to all spiritual drift. First of all, it's, it's hard to detect. Uh, it's, it happens slowly, so slowly that you don't notice it's happening. Uh, if there's a, a big spiritual fall in your life like adultery or porn addiction or outbursts of anger or, or slandering of other believers, well, that's easy to notice because it's undeniable evil. But spiritual drift is different from that. It's it's subtle and gradual. It's like the proverbial frog in the kettle. Hard to detect. Secondly, it's, it, it involves negligence. Uh, it usually begins with carelessness in Bible reading and prayer. Uh, daily times in the word uh, become twice a week, which becomes twice a month. After a while, the only time you ever open your Bible is when you come to church. And then after a while, you don't even bring your Bible to church anymore. Number three, it starts to make God seem unreal. Uh, Prayer starts to feel stilted, stiff, and unnatural. Doubts start to creep into your life that, that don't leave. And because God is, it seems un, unreal and distant and almost not there at all, number four, you start to look for God's substitutes to fill in the void. And your, your thought life starts to run amok. Uh, and, and therefore, you start to take legitimate things. Certainly illegitimate things can be, can be God's substitutes as well. But let me tell you what happens to Christians that typically the drift happens in legitimate areas. They take legitimate things and those legitimate things slowly start to become ultimate things. Things like family, fitness, retirement savings, nice homes and a car, job promotions, status, the the appearance of success, comfort, being liked by others, having a good time. Uh, these, all of those things are not bad in and of themselves. Obviously, most of them are good things. But it be, they, a person who is drifting, they start to make those things what they ultimately live for. 
They've substituted God with those things. And then when that happens, a marked, abrupt change kind of happens. But it happens, it, you, you become so hardened, you don't notice this abrupt change, is that you, you become consumed with what is temporary. And uh, you have no taste for eternal, the eternal anymore. You don't really want to go to heaven. Heaven doesn't seem very good to you at all. Seems boring. In fact, you bought into the Hollywood version of, of heaven where it's just a bunch of angels on clouds strumming harps. Uh, one of the ways that this temporality is, is shown is, is, is we, we watch TV, of course, which is fine. But we watch TV without discrimination, which is not fine. And because we watch TV without discrimination, we slowly get sucked into the values of the world. And then another rather abrupt drop happens while that is happening. We, we are no longer bothered by what is wrong. Instead, we are bothered by what is right. They, they, they actually flip in our minds. A sin becomes normalized because we make peace with it. Sin no longer shocks us, which is always a sign of hardening. Instead, what shocks us is biblical truth. We have a generation of Christians that are more shocked by the Bible's teaching on men and women's roles than they are shocked about how many young Christian couples have slept together before they get married. And then finally, kind of the, the end result of drift is that you stop believing. Before you know it, you don't believe what you used to believe anymore. You gradually let go of everything that you treasured all your life. You're drifting from God. Well, my friends, this is why the book of Hebrews was written. There's a whole book in our Bible devoted to this problem and how to solve it. As was already read, Hebrews 2.1, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Now, what do you suppose the writer of Hebrews provides as the grand solution to this big problem? It's something truly magnificent. He reveals the problem to drift is an understanding of the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ. By understanding how glorious Jesus Christ is, it, it is made to awaken us from our sleeping hearts and give us a major course correction. Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So this morning, this is what I'd like to think carefully about with you. A fresh understanding of Christ's glory holds us back from spiritual drift. A fresh Understanding of Christ's glory holds us back from spiritual drift. Let's pray together.
Father, we, we ask then that you will help us. We know that some are right in the middle of this right now, probably asleep and not even awake, not even aware of it, and therefore I ask that you will awaken them in the next half hour. But I know that all of us are tempted by this. I know I am tempted by this regularly. Ever since I turned 50, drift is perhaps the greatest threat in my life almost every day. So I pray that all of us will, will, will heed what you have to say, embrace your solution, and arrest this drift, that we'd make a major course correction this very morning in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe it was uh, St. Augustine that said, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. In other words, the, the Bible functions kind of like a dimmer light in a living room. As you move along through the Old Testament, the light starts to get brighter and brighter, and eventually when you get to the New Testament, things are visible that weren't visible before. So I'd like to start this journey from the old to the new in Psalm 45, which was read to us earlier. When we look at Psalm 45, and you can turn to your Bibles there, that's in the middle of your Bible, if you have your Bible. The, the dimmer light is on low here. Uh, we, we see only shadows in the room, but they are remarkable shadows nonetheless. So number one, we start with the Old Testament shadow. Psalm 45 is a, is a wedding psalm. I thought about preaching on it at your, at your wedding, but I thought, nah, it's gonna be today and I got something else for you guys. This is a great wedding psalm about a great king and his bride. And as John so rightly said, it uses superlative language. It, it portrays the ideal king. Uh, it really goes over the top. Uh, when you read it, you, you say there ain't any king in the ancient world that this is describing. Verse, t verse one tells us that this is a song that is directed to a king. And, and who is this king? Well, in the J Jewish Targum, which was the Aramaic translation of the Old Testament that was used by the Jews in the Old Testament when they were in captivity in Babylon, verse two is translated this way. Your beauty, O King Messiah, is greater than that of the children of men. Long before Jesus even appeared on the scene, the Jewish people recognized that this had to be a description of the Messiah. Now today, in the interest of time, I'm, I'm just gonna focus on two remarkable verses in this psalm. Look with me at verse six. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. Now, remember this, okay? The Bible, uh, in the strongest possible language, condemns idolatry. Uh, probably the sin that is talked about more than any other in the whole Bible is idolatry. 
Uh, and the multiplication of gods is abhorrent in the Bible. The Jewish people believed in one God and only one God. There is only one God. Any other God is an idol, okay? But here in verse six, in the Old Testament Jewish scriptures, we have a king being addressed as God. A mere man is being addressed as deity. Now, we recognize in the ancient world that, that many times kings were, were, were thought of as deity. In the Roman world, Caesar was, was worshiped as God. Uh, when, when we were in Japan, uh, this, is, this wasn't true in modern Japan as much, but in ancient Japan, the, the emperor was worshiped as God. But my friends, in the, in the Jewish world, in the Israel world, uh, they had no category at all for an earthly king being worshiped as God. That would have been blasphemy. And yet, there it is. And then to make things even more complicated, look at verse seven. You continue to talking to the person that is addressed as God in verse six. He says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore God, your God. What? The, the king that is referred to as God in the very next verse is talked about him having a relationship to God. Like he's distinct from God. And, and what is most amazing of all is that it is said with little fanfare and zero explanation. One of my favorite Old Testament scholars is Alec Mote, uh, who wrote some brilliant commentaries on Isaiah and Psalms. And he says this about these verses. An unequivocal assertion of the deity of the Messiah. But this coupled with your God in verse seven poses an Old Testament enigma. How can the Messiah be both God and a devotee of God? The answer has to await the New Testament. So what we see in Psalm 45 uh, is a shadow of something that is truly mysterious and great, but we don't quite know what they mean. Now, I'd like to take you to the book of Hebrews. If you could turn your New Testament to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter one. We've gone from the Old Testament shadow and now we're moving to the New Testament reality. Now the dimmer light is being turned quite a bit. The contents of the room that were only shadows are starting to appear with greater clarity. As it says in Colossians 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Hebrews is a book uh, written in the New Testament to followers of Christ who were considering going back to Judaism. It's, it's, it's a book that's obviously addressed to people that knew their Old Testament really well. It's, it's, it's addressed to Jews who became Christians and became followers of Christ, but the persecution against Christians was so intense that, that they're now considering going back to what they were before, drifting away. 
And the writer of Hebrews knows that the solution to this problem is a deeper revelation and a deeper recognition of who Christ is. So I wonder this morning, my friends, who is Jesus Christ to you? Who is he? Because the way we live our lives is a reflection of what we think about Christ. If I were to go into your daily life and observe you, I could get a pretty big picture of how you think about Christ. And you would get the same if you watched me. Is Christ an ancient figure? Is he a religious leader? Is he the founder of Christianity? Or is he something more than that? Now I want you to notice two significant truths revealed in Hebrews chapter one. Hebrews chapter one uh, sews together a whole bunch of Old Testament quotations making a brilliant uh, statement about the, the identity of Jesus Christ. And notice it, it, it quotes Psalm 45 in verses eight and nine. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now notice, first of all, that now in the book of Hebrews, where the dimmer light is a lot brighter, it is no longer about an earthly king, but it says it's about the sun. Do you see that? We see that the true target of this psalm wasn't just some kind of imaginary or ideal king, but an actual king that was gonna show up many years in the future. And if we map the Son of God, the Christ, onto to Psalm 45, all of a sudden it makes a lot more sense. But I remember many years ago noticing what I'm about to tell you. And I remember when I, when I noticed this, uh, wow, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I hope it does the same for you. Notice who is saying this. It says, but of the son, he, he says. Who's the he here? Well, you just have to go back to verse five. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Or again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels win, winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God. It's, it's, it's truly astounding that God says the Son is God. God is the one that's calling Jesus Christ God. My friends, if, if God the Father says 
that Jesus is God, consider the mic dropped. The highest authority in the universe is calling the Son God. But we still have a problem because right away in verse nine, verse nine is just a, a, trans, uh, a repeat of Psalm 45, verse seven. It's still describing this God as somebody that's also relating to God. I mean, if you think about it, it's confusing. Especially in light of the fact that the, new the Old and New Testament will not countenance any talk of anything other than one God. This kind of talk, if you pay attention to it, is confusing. How can someone who is spoken of as God, by God, still be devoted to his God? How is this not creating multiple gods and violating the essential confession of the unity of one God in the Bible? I was saying in the pre-service prayer that I felt nervous all week long about talking to you about this because it's a great mystery. I feel like I'm in Isaiah 6 where I'm a man of unclean lips and I've seen the king of glory. Uh, I, I told someone in an email that I, I feel like I'm swimming over the Mariana Trench. This, th these are great mysteries, my friends. And I know I will not do it justice, but I'm gonna try. So I put together a few little diagrams that I hope will, ex will help along this journey. The first is this diagram, uh, uh, the triangle di diagram. Do we have that? Okay, if you could put that on. I'll just wait, because it's gonna help them. This, is, uh, this diagram is... Um, a very common diagram that's used in Christian theology. And all it is, it's trying to express a truth. All analogies, all diagrams fail to express the greatness of God. But this is a, a feeble attempt. What this diagram does is it attempts to show the unity of God and the distinctions in God. All three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are God. They are God, but they are not each other, okay? The Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son and the Father. On and on it goes, but they are all God. And so this is, I, 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 some of you know that I, I spent a lot of time studying the Trinity this summer. And I realized the great question about the Trinity, or one of the great questions about the Trinity that most of us haven't thought about enough, is how do you distinguish the persons of the Trinity? How can that distinguishing actually take place? They are all equally infinite God, glorious, majestic. They all have the characteristics of God, loving, kind, merciful, just, they, they, they share the essence of God. They share, the, they share the character of God. So how do you possibly differentiate the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? An ancient 
heresy of the Trinity was modalism, where God is thought of as he puts on his father hat and his son hat and the Holy Spirit hat. It, it, it can't be like, I'm a, I'm a grandfather, I'm a husband, I'm a father. No, that, that doesn't work because it's all the same person. That fails. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that we are talking about three distinct persons, not people. The theologians are really careful about that. You're not talking about three people. You're talking about three persons in one God. I mean, if you had three identical clones of God, you would not have the Trinity because you would have three equal gods. But the Bible says there are not three gods, there is one God. There is no God but the one true God, the gods of the nations are idols. This is a genuine problem. And yet, the only reason this problem exists, my friends, is because the New Testament reveals it. In fact, like I said, it's in shadow form in the Old Testament, in Psalm 45, for example. 1,700 years ago, in 325 AD, and then later on, later, a little 50 years later at the Council of Chalcedon, but at the, at the Church Council of Nicaea, a lot of very, very smart, godly bishops, more than 300, gathered over a long period of time to figure this out to try to explain it as best as they could, to wrestle about how to define this greater revelation of who God is. And they, they came up with a creed called the, the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed is the only creed, to my knowledge, that has ever been adopted and in, in completely adopted by all three branches of Christianity. The, the Roman Catholic Church, the Protestant Church, and the Orthodox Church have all completely agreed to the Nicene definition of what's there, okay? It's a very critical creed. And they, they articulated what the Bible is teaching about who God is based on scripture and based on very careful thought. And this is how they did it. They said, maybe we could have the next slide just so that everyone can see that. The son has been eternally begotten by the person of the father. The son, this is how we would distinguish the Son has been eternally begotten by the person of the Father. Now, when we say begotten, we cannot read into that human procreation concepts. God is, is, doesn't begot or beget like we do. He is in a completely different category. We're not talking about like apples and oranges. We're talking more like stick figures than the actual person, okay? So begotten, when we talk about the father begetting the son, we, it does not mean that the son was created by the father. It does not mean that the son's divine nature was derived from the father. And it does not mean that the son is inferior to the father. It is an eternal 
act of generation. What it does mean is the son is eternally dependent on the father for his person of the son. His personhood is eternally generated by the father. The scripture says, for as the father has life in himself, so he is granted the son also to have life in himself. This explains the distinction between the father and the son in the unity of God. Understanding it is another matter. <laughs> okay, I, I know my MacBook Pro uh, works and I use it every day. I don't have a clue how software is put together. And even more than that, the people that actually designed those chips that make all that happen, I don't get that, okay? There's an awful lot of things I don't get. When I got a bad headache, I take that little white thing and somehow it goes into my body and it finds pain and it puts out the pain. I don't know how, that, how it does that, but it does it, okay? This is what the Bible teaches about who God is, the true and living God. When we talk about God, this is who we're talking about. There's no other God. This is, this is, this is God. Let's look at the next diagram there, the side, the side view cone for a second. This diagram looks at the Trinity from two viewpoints. As he is in himself and as he is in his work of saving us, okay? God existed before there was anything else. He had eternal communion among the Father, Son, and the Spirit. God didn't lack anything. He didn't create us because he needed somebody to love. The Father loved the Son and the Spirit eternally. There was a communion of love forever. God was complete and full and free. But he came down and he did create us, and not just create us, but he also redeemed us. It was the second person of the Trinity who became a human being, not the Father and not the Spirit. And this, this one that came down and became a human being, he possesses two natures, divine and human, but they're fused into one person. And this one person's name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, now I recognize that this, we're, we're in deep waters here and you, I've lost many of you already. But persevere with me, my friends, because this it really matters. And you're gonna see why it matters in a second. Let me tell you, if, if you get this, not like if you understand it or comprehend it, but if you get this, if you see it and acknowledge it, all of a sudden the virgin birth of Christ is not a problem to you anymore. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that's not a problem anymore. Miracles, they're not a problem. Nothing is a real problem anymore once you get this. Some verses in scripture are talking about the son and his humanity. And so we, we find that Jesus prayed to God. It was, he was his God as a human. It talks about him with regard to his human nature. And, and then there's other times where it talks about him with regard to his divine nature. So when it's talking about his humanity, Jesus says, the father is greater than I. When he's talking about just within two chapters in the same book, 
When he's talking about his, his eternal relationship with God, he says, I and the Father are one. I know this is a lot to take in, and frankly, nobody could make this stuff up. There's no other religion on the planet that's even close to this. We know this because the Bible reveals it. Things were revealed in the Bible that were a mystery that we had to try to figure out. What is going on here? This is the mysterious greatness of who God is. And so here's the great question. What difference does all this make? This is all a nice theology lesson, Tim, but, but, but who cares? What difference does it make? Oh, my friends, it makes a huge difference. It makes a huge difference because if you see the glory of who Jesus Christ is, if you see the glory of who he is, it will affect your drift. You won't be so casual with God. Right after speaking about verse after verse after verse that is proving the glory of Jesus Christ, the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, in chapter two, verse one, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Because this is true, we must then do this, we must pay close attention to what we have heard. The very opposite of that is found in verse three. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This word neglect means in the original just to be unconcerned, to be casual, to be apathetic, dismissive, excuse-making. It's the exactly the same word that's used in, in Jesus' own parable about people that didn't take God seriously. Let me read it to you. This is Jesus speaking. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and the fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But it says they paid no attention. Exactly the same original word as neglect in verse three of Hebrews two. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm another to his business. Attention is a precious commodity in our world. Everybody is trying to get your attention. We live in an incredibly distracted world. Uh, what should we be paying attention to in our lives? Among all the noisy, noisy voices, should we be paying attention mostly to what's most entertaining? <clears throat> what's most likely to make us lots of money? What's most likely to get people to like us? American politics, sports, improving your skill set, just functioning in life so you get hurt the least? On and on it goes. Is that what we should be putting all our attention on? I mean, my friends, all of us can pay some attention to all of these things, 
but all of those things are temporary. They will not last. None of those things will help you in your standing with God. One day, we are all gonna stand before the judgment seat of Christ. One day that's gonna happen. The Bible tells us you'll never be able to say that you didn't know that was gonna happen because I just told you. One day I'm gonna stand before the judgment seat of Christ and so are each one of us, every one of us. God's got all eternity. And on that day, if we have are leaning on, on legitimate gods of family or work, or, and that's what we've lived for, that's what we've devoted our life to, that's what we've made our salvation, we're gonna find the broken sticks. We're gonna find that we lean on that, it's gonna be like leaning on a spider's web. It will not hold, it will not help us. But Hebrews 2 tells us there is something that deserves our fullest attention. Turn back to Hebrews 1 for a moment and let me read to you the first three verses of Hebrews 1. It tells us that God is speaking. God is speaking to us. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. God is speaking. He's speaking to us through his Son. This Jesus is the very Son of God. How do we stop the, the slow, gradual drift away from God? We pay attention, according to chapter two, verse one. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. If, if, if Christ is who the Bible says he is, we have to pay attention to him. And if he is not, Eat, drink, and be merry. Don't come to church anymore. This is a farce. You're wasting your time. We can safely ignore him and ignore the Bible. But if he is in fact who he says he is, to ignore Jesus Christ is the worst decision you could ever make. How do we take Christ seriously in a practical way? What does it actually look like practically? My friends, it means you take the scriptures seriously. For a follower of Christ, a scripture that is opened once a week on Sundays is not a word that is being taken seriously. Compare that to how much time you give to listening to the news or to watching TV. We give our time, friends, to what we value. We give our time to what we value. A shut Bible is the equivalent of telling Christ that you don't want him to speak to you. A shut Bible is closing the door to God. But here's the reality. If we don't take Christ seriously, if we close our, our eyes and shut our ears to his, his voice in the scriptures, this is what happens. You remain the same year 
after year after year. Have you ever been troubled by that? By, by meeting people or maybe you're one of the people that hasn't changed at all in 20 years? Essentially, you're exactly the same person. You're not any kinder. You're not any more self-controlled. You're not any more loving. You're not, your prayer life hasn't changed. Your understanding of truth hasn't changed. You're not more forgiving. You're not more merciful. Uh, you're not more ready to confess your sins. You haven't changed in years. You know, why that, you know why that happens, my friends? It happens towards people who don't spend time in the word, who are ignoring his voice. It is the mark of those who truly belong to Christ to take his words with utmost seriousness and follow him. Listen to Jesus' words. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. In another place he said, when he, he, Jesus is speaking about the great shepherd, really himself, he says, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. So what I'd like us to do now is, is we're gonna do two more things. We're gonna, I'm gonna go down there and we're gonna confess the Nicene Creed together, which confesses who God is according to what the Bible in the New Testament, when the dimmer light is on full, this is how God is revealed. There's no other God than this God. This is the God of the universe, the God we're about to confess. We're gonna confess that together and then I'll close the service with a benediction. So if we could have that up, Jordan, and I'd like us to confess that together. If you could all stand. And let's, let's say this as a confession of our faith. And if you've never believed in Christ, if you're a person that's just interested perhaps, that's why you're here today. We're so glad you're here. I encourage you to, when you say these words, confess them in faith and, and, and close, close the deal with Jesus. Become his follower. Let's say it together. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost, of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. 
And we believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let me pray. And now may grace, mercy, and peace be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Amen.